Welcome to our podcast today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. I'm so pleased to have Oscar Suarez with us. Oscar is a baseball agent. He's been doing this a long time. I've known him about five years. He's fantastic. He's great at what he does. And I'm so pleased to welcome him to smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Oscar, welcome to our program. Oscar, uh, you were born in Cuba. You grew up in um, Puerto Rico. How did you end up in Miami? I was reading a little bit about your background, and it not only said you ended up in Miami, but you ended up doing accounting in Miami. Tell me about that transition from Puerto Rico to Miami, and then how did you end up in accounting? Yeah, well, what happened is I I came to school in the States, and my senior year, I got my bachelor's degree in accounting. I graduated from a school called Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, and my first job was out of Miami, and it was a big conglomerate. It was the first, uh, if you remember, the, those leverage buyouts that were going on, LBOs, leverage buyout management would buy it and pay it back with uh, with the operating income they would have on it. And so we had the first one, and it was called Wameco Enterprise. So I worked there for about a year and a half after I graduated. And then just before they were finalizing the LBO, I took off for graduate school at the University of Denver. That's how I came out west. So I worked for you know a year and a half, a year and three quarters, and from there, I went to graduate school, and you know, from there, I, I ventured out west to come out to the University of Denver. Tell me about that transition from being an accountant, and I saw you work for some companies, so you got some experience working, I guess, for some larger corporations in doing different accounting positions for them, sometimes at a very high level you reach with some insurance companies and other companies I saw. But then how did you make that transition? What I'm specifically thinking about, because in talking to you, you went from big company accounting to some CPA work, am I correct? And in how did you meet Armando Reynoso? That's what I really want to know because Armando pitched for the Braves and, and that was, am I correct, your first big entry into the world of being a management of an athlete? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's true. I worked as an accountant for, I was not a CPA. I was a certified management accountant, certified internal auditor. So I worked in the private sector. And uh, I worked for quite a few good insurance companies. I worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Colorado and for Great West Life. And about, oh, I would say, I used to go to a lot of AAA games in Denver where we were based. Great West Life was based in Denver. Blue Cross Blue Shield was also based in Denver. And I go to a lot of AAA games at Denver Bears, at Denver Zephyrs, met a lot of people, made a lot of contacts. And uh, my first major decline was in Armando Reynoso. It was a young man by the name of Leo Garcia, an outfielder was ended up going to the big leagues with Cincinnati. He had his agent had dumped him and he asked me to help him. And I was still working the insurance company at the time. And I had a good contact in Detroit with a guy that was a general manager of the Detroit Tigers because he had scouted me when I was a kid. And he gave Leo a job and Leo was playing triple A baseball with the Toledo Mudhens. And a couple of weeks later, Joe McDonald was his name. Mr. McDonald called me and said, hey, I'm trading him to Cincinnati. I said, what, you don't like him? He said, no, I love him, but the Cincinnati Reds are going to take him straight to the big leagues. So he went straight to the big leagues. He got hurt, so he didn't have a very long career. But it helped me get my certification and my license. So he, he was really the first guy. And from there, I took him to Taiwan, where he made a really nice career for himself. He was an all-star in Taiwan for many years. But the way I got into it was going to the ballpark, getting to know a lot of people. Armando Reynoso came through a guy that was running the minor league departments for the Atlanta Braves, a gentleman by the name of Bobby Deuce, older gentleman that at 81, he was still catching bullpens for the Braves. He was a farm director and a good friend of his and then became one of my best friends, Paul Egan, who today works for the Rockies. Well, they were both working for the Atlanta Braves and they needed an outfielder on their double A team. And 
they were desperate. I was able to place a young man from Dominican that was out here in California playing for an independent league team, sent him to their double A affiliate. The guy did really well for them and saved the day for them. So they were really happy. And the following spring, I got a really nice call from Paul Egan's and he said, hey, there's a young Mexican pitcher here that I think would be a great client for you. And he's looking for direction. And that's how I got to know Armando Reynoso. And then, then the rest is history. Not only has the friendship blossomed, I ended up representing him throughout his whole career, but he's the one that opened the door. You know, it was a break, Paul. And today, Paul Egan still works for the Rockies. He went from the Atlanta Braves to the Rockies. Ironically, when Armando went from the Atlanta Braves to the Rockies in 93 with the expansion draft. And to this day, you know, Paul Egan's is a very dear friend of mine and of Armando's. And that's how he opened the door for that for that one, one big guy. I, I'd done him a favor without expecting anything in return. And he gives me back a, a a major league pitcher, which is unbelievable. That is a great story. And some of these uh, podcasts that I do and from my, my own experience, I feel, Oscar, that really my philosophy is it takes seven years on average to really build a business from scratch. That is if you make it. And that percentage, as we know, is not high. Is that the same feeling you get when you were building your agency business that to really make a living at it and become profitable and start, stop your part-time jobs and other revenue streams and be able to do this full-time, that it was about a seven-year process? Am I right? Or were you able to with the signing of the players you just discussed, attack it at a much faster rate? No, I think that unless you're a big company with a lot of capital, it's very hard to, to make it right off the bat unless all of a sudden you find a Clayton Kershaw and he's on with you. And, you know, like my good friend uh, that represents Mike Trout, he's always had Mike Trout. What, what the heck does he need anybody else, you know? So, but in my case, what I did, I was working as an accountant. I was working, I did a lot of seminars, you know, for the Institute of Internal Auditors. And same time, I started representing players. And I would say I signed Armando in 1991. And his first contract that really paid off for me was a contract in 1996 with the New York Mets. So yeah, it took about five, six years to get there. Wow. And did you have some side jobs while you were doing that? Yeah, I was doing a lot of seminar teaching and, and I was, you know, I do some accounting work on the side for people, bookkeeping deals and, you know, just to keep myself alive kind of thing. And, you know, just stay with it and, and not give up. Oscar, for our listeners, why would a person sign with an Oscar Suarez, uh, let's say, I mean, you look around today, you see these big mega firms. Some of them are not only representing baseball players, but actors, actresses at the same time and so on and so forth. They have a lot of agents working for one agency. They have a power to cover the globe. But yet, here we are in small business and you still pick up your share of clients. What is the key to that if you had to put your finger on it? Well, I think it's the relationship with the players. You know, what happens is players talk to each other all the time. There's a lot of uh, lobbying that goes inside a, a major league clubhouse, a minor league clubhouse. You know, players will, will talk about women. They'll talk about a lot of different things. And they'll also talk about agents. And they'll try to figure out, hey, who, who's the best guy to help us? So when a player is in need of an agent, he's going to ask his best buddies on the team, hey, who's representing you? What do they do for you? And you got to stay out there in the open. You know, as, I, as I've gotten older, I haven't gone out to recruit much, but my name is still out there. And there are players that say, hey, you know what? I don't want to go with a big firm. I want to go with a one-on-one -on -one individual. And they start looking. That's where people like myself and there's, a, I bet there's about five, six, seven other agents just like myself that 
we end up getting clients like that. We might get one client here, one client there, but we're not looking to add 20 in a, in a one, two, three. We're trying to get selective and be quality oriented. So it's, it's keeping your name out there. It's going to the ballpark now. Unfortunately, nobody can go to the ballpark. So you do a lot of work talking to the players on the phone. Today, I was talking to one of my kids with the Chicago Cubs, a guy that's been pitching the big leagues for them next year. And he's a guy that came to me. You want to talk about why he would come to me? He came to me because the agent he had really wasn't doing anything for him, he said in his words. But the main thing was that I represented his dad. That's how old I am. So and his dad loved what I'd done for him. So he said, hey, why don't you try my guy? You know, so his son picked up the phone and said, first time I probably listened to my dad. And I talked and, and we talked together and we got together and got, and got it going. So a lot of different ways of getting players, but you've got you to be out there. Your name's got to be out there. That's great. And I know that you've just recently started teaching a class for sports management worldwide, SMWW. So on that, you are helping prospective agents develop their careers what piece of i mean there's so many courses you teach so many sessions so i'm sure this can't be answered in one question but if there's one thing that you would tell someone in your class that's going to help them be successful to build their brand and their business what would it be to a new agent starting out well, the key thing, and we talked about this probably in the first class, in the first class of week number one, there were there were eight classes, eight weeks. But the key thing besides the relationships that you build with players and with teams, and you got to know everybody, the key thing is that you understand, you got to go into with your eyes wide open and you, and you have to understand what is it that I'm looking for? What kind of player am I looking for? What niche can I develop for myself? I have to understand that if I'm a little guy and my guy gets up there, there are going to be a lot of vultures, you know, the, all, all the big firms trying to steal my clients. So when a client leaves you, you can't take it personally. You got to say, hey, you know what, there'll be somebody else and let that guy move on and you never know what's going to happen. But so you build relationships with players, you build relationships with ball clubs, with executives on ball clubs, with scouts, but you got to go in with your eyes open and understand that the players, they, it's what can you do for me now? You know, they, if somebody can do something for them now, that's who they're going to go with. It's in the old days, and I call the old days the, the 70s, not the 70s, but the 80s and the 90s and the, and the early 2000s, players were different. Most of them came to play ball. They want to go at it. Not to say that players today don't want to play ball. They, players today are very, very talented. But they have so many other distractions and so many, so many other avenues of entertainment that – as an agent, it's sometimes it's hard to keep up with all of them because one guy might be interested in being a, a model for a clothing line. The other guy may want to, you know, may, may want you to take care of his wife when he's away running around on his wife. The other guy may want to start a business in the state of Florida because uh, he wants to move his residence there because he doesn't want to pay state taxes. So you get involved in so many crazy things with players that you have to understand how to keep it on the up and up and up. And over the years, I've always tried to keep this, you know, as honest as it can be. And knowing fully well that I'm doing a lot of work for players that may never pay me a dime because they may never make it. And that's something else that we had to accentuate and emphasize in the class. And of course, I see you have a big advantage being that you grew up in Puerto Rico. You speak fluent Spanish. It's your native tongue, if you will. You're around the Latin American players. But I saw that you've also had success in dealing in Japan and in some other areas. And so tell me a little bit about that, that you've had some American players, some players that you've brought to Japan. And tell me about that. And also, while we're there, what is the state of today? 
today's game. Uh, do you see expansion in the quality of play in some of these overseas leagues? And do you think at some point they'll catch up to Major League Baseball? Or will this always be the granddaddy here in, in the USA? Yeah, both are good questions. I mean, it's... Uh... You know, with the Japan thing, I'm not as involved with it today, although I'll send a guy here and a guy there. But over the years, I, I developed a very good friendship with a guy that lived in Eugene, Oregon, that ended up being the managing partner, the guy that ran all the Tokyo Giants baseball operations. And uh, he had talked to a lot of agents, and all these agents were giving him all this, all these stories about what how they could do this and do the other. And he was looking for a guy that could evaluate ballplayers and help him determine who to take out there. So he and I developed a really nice friendship. And at the beginning, never took any of my players. But I helped him evaluate players, understand what they were. You know, can they adjust to the, the Asian way of living? Can they have success out there? And we started having success with some of the guys that were taken out there that belonged to other agents. And I wasn't making any money out of it. But the key thing, I was developing a tremendous contact. And then lo and behold, one day, I had a young man pitching in, in that had pitched for the Dodgers. And he got into it with Pedro Guerrero. So the Dodgers unloaded him, left him on the street. Nobody would sign him. So he ended up going to Mexico to play. He played in Mexico. Well, from there, I met him. And I took him to Taiwan to play. His wife was a Cuban lady. So she and I hit it off right away. You know, we went through a lot of the same things her family that my family did. And I took him to play in Taiwan. And, and he was a superstar in Taiwan. And before you know it, Three years into the deal in Taiwan, the Taiwanese team decides, hey, we don't, we don't want to have him here. He's going to make too much money. So they sent him home back to the Dominican Republic. And while he was pitching that winter, my friend in Eugene, Oregon, was looking for a horse, like they call a, a number one, number two starter for the Tokyo Giants. And I said, you know what? I may have him this time around. It might not be another agent. So he said, you know, with all the things that you've done for me over the years, I'm going to take a flyer on this. So he took the young man out to Japan for a tryout. Not only did he ace the tryout, he ended up pitching in Japan for about six, seven years. The guy ended up being a superstar in Japan. And that opened up a lot of doors. I ended up taking guys, a lot of what you call 4A players, guys that don't get established in the big leagues, but are superstars in AAA. And a lot of them ended up going to play in Japan. Some of them had nice careers out there. Others played for a year and came back. But that relationship was really good. And uh, not only with his club, but with about three or four other clubs. The only thing is, we grow older, they, they start, you know, my friend decided to retire. He no longer runs the Tokyo Giants. Now it's from more like a corporation and they rather deal with some big, big conglomerate agencies and that's what they're doing. So, you know, I still have contacts with them once in a while, I'll sneak a guy in there. But, um, you know, I snuck a guy into Rockertown Eagles a couple years ago. The guy played for three years, had a nice run. Now he's back. You know, so it's just keeping the doors open and figuring out what these people need. On the other hand, the second questioning here, you know, will they ever catch up? I don't think here, here's the thing where, where it's hard to catch up with the big leagues. The big leagues have got so much depth that when a guy goes down, they got somebody ready to step in. If you go to Korea, you go to Japan, the starters are all unbelievable. The first two starters on each team, unbelievable. The, the starting nine, the starting eight position players, unbelievable. The H, unbelievable. But when they get hurt or they got to go to secondary player, that's where the big drop-off occurs. In the States, you look at the Dodgers. Corey Bellinger goes out of the game, right? And all of a sudden, there's Jock Peterson hitting two home runs in a game, you know, replacing him. So in baseball, not everybody's going to be as deep as the Dodgers, but, you know, you can ask the poor Yankees because they can't replace Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, but th those are two hard players to replace. But nonetheless, they can still keep it rolling because the backup players that are in the big leagues are very, very good players. Those backup players in the big leagues can go to Japan, Korea, and be superstars if they can adjust to the way of living out there. Because the key thing to go to Asia is to adjust to the, the way of living and, and being able to be very open about it. A lot of uh, Latinos do very well in Japan because of the fact that it's 
a lot of similar eating style, you know, a lot of rice, that kind of stuff. But also, secondly, you know, when you're an American and you live in San Diego, California, you live in Denver, Colorado, you live in, in some of these great cities that we have, you go out to Japan, and if it's not Tokyo, some of these other cities, you might say to yourself, you know what, I'd rather be back home in the United States. It'd be interesting to see how Adam Jones is taken to, to Japan, that he's out there this year, the San Diego native who had a long, long career in the big leagues. How does he feel about Japan? None of those leagues, I don't ever think, will catch up with the big leagues. It's a big league scout internationally. And all those leagues, when they take players, they're, they're limited in the quota of players they can take from the outside. The big leagues, you can have a, a team, if the best 25 players are Japanese, you have 25 Japanese players on the field, and that's the way it goes. They're not, they're not going to care if it's American, Japanese, Colombian, Cuban, or Puerto Rican. Right. Well, hey, that's great. Joining us again is Oscar Suarez. We're really happy to have him today with us on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Oscar, let's talk a little agent work here. If you're a small business compared to these big firms that you were just talking about, can you get a player in rounds one through five? Because that's really where the money is if we talk a little bit of baseball. And how do you go about that with such big horsepower that these firms have? Yeah, again, a very good question. I think the key, yes, you can go after the player. But you know what? What you got to understand is go after one player and get that one player. And if you miss on that one player, wait till the following year. But don't try to go after 10 players because you don't have the labor and the manpower that those big firms have got that they can spread out all over the country. And they have, like, you know, you look at a Weissman, you look at a Boris group, you look at, a, you know, CAA, they've got guys spread out all over the country, not only for the draft, but for, for professional baseball. And you as a one-person agent, you have to go out and, I mean, look at, look at uh, Trevor Bauer. He's got a lady that went to school with him, I think at USC where he went to school, and she got certified as an agent. And she just went out and wanted to convince Trevor Bauer to let her represent him. And he said, yes. And I don't think she's gone out after anybody else. She's doing the best, learning the business and doing the best she can do. And, and she's got herself a freaking superstar in her hands. And what she's doing, she's taking care of him. You know, a, a guy like Craig Landis that represents Mike Trout. How many other guys does he really need? He was with a firm for a while. That firm decided to be bought out by a big conglomerate. He had Mike Trout. He said, I'm not going into that conglomerate. Mike Trout said, I'm not either. I'm going to stay with you. But what is Craig Landis' secret? He takes care of Mike Trout. And if he goes out to get a player or two, you know, he's very, very, very slow about it. He'll go get another player that he knows won't take away time from his super player. So answering your question, yes, you can go after those players, but don't try to go after 10 guys in the first five rounds. Identify one guy that you really want to go at and, and try with all your heart to, to get him and, and make the inroads. And, and you might miss for the first two or three years, but believe me, somewhere along the line, you're going to get the guy. And that's where the problem is in order when people talk about getting paid. That's money you're investing in yourself and investing in taking a player. That's money. You may call it down the drain, but it's really money that's giving you the experience to get better in recruiting that player you're trying to get. Oscar, from the player arena, uh, I know that you've done some work with your son who played minor league ball, and both you and your son have done a great job investing and selling and then investing again in independent baseball. Tell me a little bit about that from a business perspective for those listening here today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. What is that minor league quality like of that baseball? Can a franchise make money and, and do you find it fruitful? Yeah, it's um, all the guys are hungry and what they want to do is get back to affiliated baseball. They want to get to affiliated baseball. So it's not like the minor leagues. The minor leagues are going to protect the prospect. If a prospect has a little hangnail, 
They're telling him, hey, sit down. Don't worry about it. Don't play for two days. You'll be back in the lineup here. If you don't keep playing, somebody will come take your job because they want to get to affiliate baseball themselves. So it's a very hungry style of baseball. Also, we love it because my son, having played minor league baseball, in his case, I think he came out of independent baseball back to affiliate baseball about three times with the Astros, with the Phillies, yeah, with the Dodgers. And um, he learned a lot and he saw how hungry players were. He also saw an, a business opportunity that you're not going to get rich off it, but you get a franchise, you run it, you can make a living for a year, two years, five years. And the day you decide to sell it, maybe you can sell it for a little bit of a profit, the kind of teams that he's bought and sold. But, you know, talk about some teams that made a lot of money. You look at the St. Paul Saints, the Sugarland Skeeters, the Somerset Patriots, the Long Island Ducks. Those guys, the Lincoln Salt Dogs, those, those guys are rolling in the dough. I mean, they are making a lot of money because payroll is capped at about 125000 150000 a year. And if those guys are bringing in $2 million in revenues, not only with a fan attendance and with and with commercials and with sponsors, they're making a nice living. But those franchises, you can't get your hands on because nobody's going to sell them to you. It's just very, very, very hard. So again, it's like the one-man show on the agency side. You go out, you you buy a team, and you say, okay, let me see what I can do with it. Do I, how long do I keep it? Do I keep it so it can pay my bills and I can live off it for the next 20 years? Or do I turn around and sell it for a little bit of a profit and then go on and do something else? And in his case, in my son's case, he's, he's just tried to get experience looking at different leagues. So he's been like in three different leagues and looking at them and see what he wants to do. But he still hasn't found the place where he wants to say, I want to stay here 12 months a year. That's why I think he has sold the teams and moved on. Oscar, a couple of current topics here before we go. Boy, time goes fast and we're running out of it, unfortunately. But let's get to a couple of things. One. This obviously, we got to talk about this COVID 19 impact on baseball. We're down to a 60 game season rather than our favorite 162. We've got no fans in the stands. I guess nobody has the crystal ball, but you've been around this game a long time. What do you see, at least in the short term or maybe even the long term, if you have any ideas on that? Uh, so that's one question that I have for you. And of course, I know that the CBA, the Collective Bargaining Agreement, is coming toward its expiration. So do you feel that is going to have a big impact next year on the ball game? Good questions again. I mean, yeah, you're right. On the first question, nobody has a crystal ball. I'm hoping, you know what I'm really hoping for is that before the end of the year, when we get into playoffs, that they at least allow 5,000, 7,000 fans to come into a stadium, especially they do it in a bubble where the American League playoffs are going to be in Southern California, your neck of the woods, and the National League playoffs will be in Texas. And you would hope that maybe they can let people in like they've done in Korea, they've done in Taiwan, under a very, very limited and very, very strict policy. On It's like going to a doctor. you got to go through a lot of things right now before you get in to see a doctor personally. So I would hope that's happening. If it does not, I you know, we have to be satisfied with all the cardboard boxes that are out there right now. But the level of play really has been very good. The big leaguers are big leaguers. They'd probably even be better with fans. But, you know, let's hope that for next year's spring training, this is over with. You know, I look at this COVID-19. I think there's been so much. And this becomes a political question and answer, so I don't want to go there. But, you know, to me, there's so much stuff going on that, I don't know what to believe. You know, everybody, I'll put it this way. I had a little bit of a inpatient surgery done on me and I went to this hospital and I kid with my doctor. Everybody there was a COVID-19 patient. I said, well, tell me where the kidney guys are. Tell me where the heart problem guys are. You know, there got to be other guys in here besides COVID-19. And it's all COVID-19 up and down that hospital. And I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's like a money-making machine for somebody. So I'm hoping this gets solved. I'm hoping the elections bring 
some sanity to this country, you know, because we were living in a really good economic, I mean, for baseball, we were living in a great economic boom. Baseball's going to come toppling down a lot because all these minor league teams are going to be contracted. No fans coming to the stadium. Owners are going to say they're losing a lot of money. They can't pay. So there's going to be a glutton of, of free agents next year. They're not going to get offered, unless you're a Mookie Betts type player, they're not going to get offered what they think they're worth based on comparable stats from previous years. So what does all that lead to? It's going to lead to a big drawn out fight in the CBA at the end of the playing year in 2021. And you would hope that Rob Manfred and then the guys at the union, Tony Clark and the guys at the union, you would hope that they're working on this, trying to avoid everything. Because I think when you look at what we did this year, we had a great chance to get to the forefront of the whole thing and beat everybody to the punch. Forget LeBron James and the NBA and forget all their other propaganda and everything they've got in the NFL. And baseball would have been able to step up and said, okay, boom, here we go. We're going to play 75 games. It's done. You know, commissioner and union are happy. Let's go do it. You know, without fans, let's just go do it just for the heck of it, just for one reason, to get baseball back to the top. Because obviously we all know, maybe you, you and I know, the NFL has surpassed baseball. And that's not good for our sport because I still think the hardest thing to do in the world is to hit a baseball. And the hardest skill in the world is to be a hitter in that batting box when that pitcher is coming at you from all different angles. And it's a skill. And, and the other thing, too, is I think what's happening, the game needs to change. You know, all this stuff with shifts and everything. You're seeing people begin to bunt against shifts, do different things. Go back to the old style where you won games like the San Diego Potters last night. How did they win a game? They, they inserted a pinch runner by the name of Jorge Mateo, and he ran around the bases and scored the winning run against Colorado after Profar hit a line drive into, into a deep corner right field. You know, the typical major league player would have just stopped at third base. This guy kept running, was exciting, won the game, and that's what we got to get back to. And I just hope that we saw all that before we end up going to a CBA, to strike with baseball and a new CBA, and it, it takes us another year and and as we're striking, fans are beginning to say, you know what, I'm tired of all these guys. Fans will take it out and players saying they're millionaires. What they forget is that they're 30 billionaires that own the, the clubs. But nonetheless, you've seen how the NBA has suffered. You know, they've done a lot of things and they're not getting the viewership they should be getting. And that's why when I look at baseball, I wish we would have stepped to the forefront a lot earlier. We beat everybody to the punch. Oscar, we ran out of time, but I do want one more question because it's so important to small business. These minor league franchises, some of them which are really profitable, like they're not even playing minor league baseball right now. What's going to be the state of these minor league franchises going forward? Are there going to be a lot of contraction? Is there going to be less players? What's the opportunity going to look like in your vision going forward? Well, you know, when minor league players started complaining that they weren't getting minimum wage, which is true, they're not getting minimum wage for all the time they put in. They only get paid for six months of the year and they have to work out the whole year. But you know what you're getting into when you sign a minor league contract, and that's to get to the big leagues to make money. My son can tell you, you're going to not make any money in the minor leagues unless you or first rounder of one of the top five rounds in the draft or a big international signing. So all these teams that have made money, that are doing well, what's going on now, MLB is saying, well, okay, we're going to pay minimum wage to everybody, but we got to catch that whole thing. We're going to eliminate about 1,000 minor league players. We're going to eliminate about 40 teams, about 1,000 minor league players, so we can balance the budget and pay everybody at least a minimum wage. So what it's done, it's going to hurt 40 communities, 40 ball clubs that are players who have just said, hey, you know what, let's keep on the low side and so that way we can stay and play in affiliate baseball. A lot of those players will either retire, have to leave the game or go to independent baseball. 
But the, those teams that are making money this year, they're not making money. There's nobody going in unless their sponsors are keeping them alive. And, and for God's like I, I talked to the owner of the Winnipeg Gold Ice, who's a big, big independent league team. And he's he told me he's playing the American Association and not even in his home ballpark. And he's getting a little bit of the gate in certain games. And he's probably going to lose a quarter of a million dollars, but he want to keep the baseball team alive for a year. And he's hoping his sponsors will come through and buy bigger sponsorships with him the following year if we go back to normal. And there's so many ifs and so many question marks out there that maybe it's a political guy. Maybe maybe on November 3rd, late at night, we'll figure out that the world's back to normal. I don't know. On that note, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. But on that note, Oscar, it has been such a pleasure having you today as our guest on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. We ran out of time. So many more questions and topics to get to. We hope you'll come back someday to join us. But thank you so much again for joining us on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I look forward to it anytime and always enjoy talking to you because it's, it's always fun to talk about the game. Thank you, Oscar.